Hello. Welcome back to Move This World with Sarah, conversations in social-emotional learning. I recently sat down with Nicole Phelps, mental health advocate and ambassador for the Michael Phelps Foundation, founded by her husband, Olympic superstar Michael Phelps. For many years, Nicole has courageously discussed her husband's struggle with depression and anxiety in hopes of breaking society's taboo on the subject. Joining us was Allison Schmidt, who not only serves as an advisory council member on the Michael Phelps Foundation, but is a celebrated Olympian herself with 10 medals for swimming. Allison is such a close family friend that she's currently living with Nicole, Michael, and the kids. And I loved how Nicole refers to her as the third side to any of their stories. As a mother of young children myself, I love how Nicole said it was her kids who taught her how best to support others and how through them she's learned the importance of holding space, allowing herself to be vulnerable, and that we can't just flip a switch and be happy as much as society tells us that we can. I am so excited to be sitting here today with Nicole Phelps and close family friend, Allison Schmidt. Thank you for having me. Awesome to be here. So before we dive into a discussion on all things resilience, mental health, Let's take an opportunity to ground ourselves in this practice, in this work, because we're all coming from our respective responsibilities and distractions and want to ensure that we can be the most present for one another and for this conversation. So let's just take a quick moment to acknowledge whatever distractions we are facing right now and to allow them to wash over us, through us, beyond us, and into a little box where we'll put them to this side because they'll be there when we're done. And let's let's breathe in one collective intention that we have for our time together. And think of that intention in our minds as we breathe in. And out. All right. I know my distraction is very securely in a box on a shelf. So let's dive in. So I understand there's a new video series that you have created, Nicole, on resilience. And one of your inspirations to create it was your own experience as a family through the pandemic. Could you talk a little bit more about? what was happening in your home and how those challenges inspired you to put this out into the world? So our kids aren't school age per se, right? So they were in preschool. So we had a habit of Boomer going to school. Beckett was still little when the pandemic hit. And it caused us to take a step back and realize how uninvolved we were in Boomer's day-to-day because it was like, okay, shuttle him to school. He's gone for four hours and then he comes back. And so we weren't seeing the day-to-day stuff that I think you get when you are all in a household together and everybody has their own energy that adds to the household energy. And then it's like, oh my goodness, we need to take a few steps back and recognize that we all could use a little bit of help right now. 
And part of the biggest thing for us was how can we offer this to everyone? Because yes, Michael and I have access and we're very lucky we have access, but not everybody is given that privilege. So we wanted to create something that would make sense for a parent to jump on, watch a five-minute video and say, okay, I'm experiencing that. And here's some great tips that I can use moving forward with my children. What are some of the tips that are offered? So we're looking for mental resiliency. One big example that we used was, so at the time when we recorded, we had come off of the pandemic. And so Beckett was now in preschool too. And one of the things that we went through with him was he got upset with his teacher and wouldn't return to preschool. So we it was about a week of complete meltdown. No matter who took him to school, he would not get out of the car. So mm-hmm. we were talking with a therapist and, you know, how do you work through that stuff? And where do you make the decision to say, okay, my kid is scared to go to school or my kid needs to go to school because I'm going to build his mental resiliency and mommy and daddy can't protect you every time you have an issue. So that was one of the big tips, which I think you can apply that to many different aspects, whether it's sports or going to school or a bad grade or a bad teacher. There's a few different ways that you can look at what we offered in that one. And what were some of the other COVID-related challenges? Yeah, everybody being in the house together, right? So Michael, for instance, was majority of the time on the road weekly. And so having him in the household and everybody trying to function together was a different ballgame, which I think a lot of families went through too, whether it was the mom or the dad that worked. Now mom or dad is in the home (laughs) 24-7. And you as a mom get it. It's like, okay, well, I used to have a routine, but now my whole routine is completely thrown out the window because there's another partner that has a routine. And so trying to work through those obstacles or trying to help the kids not to pit parent against parent and we're all a team. (laughs) We're not here fighting together. You know, and one thing we talked about in the emotional resiliency series is ensuring that we talk about emotions too. And so if I'm having a bad day or daddy's having a bad day, we're telling the kids dad needs a moment or mom needs a moment. They're going to step away. They'll be back. This isn't about you. It's about them feeling a certain way. That really makes me think of a conversation we had last season that brought up the subject specifically of vulnerability in parenting. And it's Mm -hmm. something that I live and I practice as a parent, but I hadn't explicitly identified or labeled until it came up in conversation. And I love the image of you saying or Michael saying, I'm going to step away. I'll be right back. I love you. You're safe. But, you know, this is what I'm feeling. And I feel a full range of feelings and dismantling this hierarchy of emotions that we don't have to put on a certain face and feel a certain way. How else do you practice this in your house, this idea of authentic, vulnerable demonstration of feelings? So no matter what good or bad emotional expression comes out of our boys, we do our best to allow them. Boomer, for instance, he is very strong and emotional And if he's mad, he's mad. And it's, okay, Booms, I get that you're mad. You're allowed to show that you're mad, but you can't use violence this way. You need to go punch a pillow, right? So a lot of the times Boomer will swing at whoever's closest, meaning both his brothers, before he (laughs) takes into account that he can't hurt someone. (laughs) So that's one way that we look at, okay, this is an issue, not okay. Hey, Booms, 
this isn't going to work. This isn't the way that we're going to be in our home because we don't practice violence on each other. You're more than welcome to walk over and punch that pillow. More often than not, of course, there's still more yelling, but we also work through breathing. So we have done, since Boomer was little, and we've done with all of them, something we called lion's breath. And so just asking them to breathe, just like you would in yoga, do a lion's breath, but asking them to take a big, deep breath in and then roar like a lion, and just kind of encouraging that outlet of some kind. We also allow crying. So if they are emotionally agitated and they are crying, they're more than allowed to express that. And there is no, you're okay, stop crying, don't do this. As of late with Boomer getting older, we do discuss the crying aspect of, okay, you're allowed to cry, but why are we actually crying? What's actually upsetting you? And obviously the other two are not there yet. Mm-hmm. And what about for you and Michael and your own demonstration of your own feelings and the range of feelings and not always having to put on a performative face for the kids? I think, for instance, this past Sunday night, I was flying to Vermont and I was beyond overwhelmed. I mean, just trying to get out of the house. I was on a red eye, get all the kids down, get myself completely packed up and out the door. On top of, you know, I'm sure Michael had his own range of emotions too with me leaving and knowing that he had the kids for himself for three days straight and what was going on. I broke down in front of the boys. I cried and I was just like, I'm so sorry guys that I'm crying right now, but mommy cannot hold this in anymore. This needs to come out because it it will release whatever's going on internally. Mm. And so just showing them that, obviously they become closer. Sometimes they'll shut down. They'll be like, oh God, what do we do? And that's probably because I don't show my emotions like Michael does. He's more outwardly with his emotions, whereas I probably keep them in for balance of the home. I think one parent always does that a little bit more than the other parent. That's so interesting. The idea of calibrating based on your partner and <laughs> even do and even doing that subconsciously. I, that's exactly it. I mean, it's a yin-yang, right? And I always tell Michael, I'm like, there's going to be days where I'm worse and you're less and vice versa. But somebody, I think, more often than not, and even when I talk to my friends, it's like, oh, okay, you're the one that shows the emotions. Okay, he's not the one that does it. I think it can vary household to household, but that's also working through your own stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You have your own muddy water to work through, and I think my own history for myself is not showing what's going on externally and just kind of keeping it inside. And how does Michael more proactively demonstrate or outwardly demonstrate his emotions? He's learning, right? So it's always learning. And Michael is very good at compartmentalizing and he will tell everyone that, but he has learned to step away. So his way of expressing what's going on is to sometimes loudly step away because he can't handle all of the sound that's going on and then sometimes just walk away completely and he'll just disappear. And that's enough for me to know that he's tapped out and I've got the rest. So so that's his demonstration of his feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And Allison, you have spoken openly about your own loss and some of the grief that you've experienced with the death of your cousin, April. Was this the catalyst for you speaking more in the open about grief and loss and sadness? Or what was the kind of turning point for you in being your own advocate for mental wellness? Yeah, April's death definitely is what made me come public about my own struggles. I realized I knew what I was going through. I felt alone in those struggles and I didn't feel normal in those struggles. 
But once the family went through the loss of my cousin to suicide and understanding that this could happen to anyone. And to me, it was a, what if I had spoke about my struggles? Would this have changed the outlook, her outlook? Would this have changed anything? So for me speaking about it, I hope that someone out there who feels alone and has those struggles can relate and understand that people do love them even in their darkest times and understand that there is light at the end of the tunnel even when we cannot see that. Who was your support as you were in the depths of loss right after learning of April's death? Who or what did you rely on during that time? My cousin killed herself on May 5th, 2015. And May 5th, I'm 25 years old. It's Cinco de Mayo. You're like, oh, you're supposed to go out. So I'm actually downstairs in my basement in Baltimore debating if I should go shower before going out. And I get a phone call from my dad at night. And I was like, well, this is weird. Dad never calls me at this time. I answered it. I had no emotion at first. Like I kind of thought that wasn't true. And I had no emotion, which to me, I cry about everything. Like (laughs) you say something and I'm that sensitive that I just start crying. My emotion just always is crying, happy, sad, whatever, frustrated. My emotion's crying. And he's crying, which I don't hear my parents cry very often. And he asked if I'm okay. And I said, yeah, just let me call you back. It's like, what are you going to do? And Michael lived down the street. And I said, I'm going to call Michael. Nicole was actually visiting in Baltimore at the time, too. So Michael and Nicole were together. So I called Michael. Him and Nicole came and picked me up. They came over to the house at first and they were like, you're coming to sleep over at our house. Like, go pack your bags. <laughs> There's no question. Like, just come sleep over. Big sleepover. And I remember getting to their house when they picked me up. Their dog came and sat on my lap. And Juno, like, always was like mama's dog, always on mama. And just the protection that I had from her and from Michael and Nicole, I stayed with them for the next month until we went to nationals and eventually moved to Arizona. But just the support that I had immediately right there in Baltimore from them too, but as well as my family throughout that time, they would come visit me just to make sure that I'm okay, check in on me to make sure I'm still going to therapy. And I think that it was just a scare for the family that allowed everyone to know that this is real and you can lose a life that's not out of the ordinary. So be kind and love each other and be support for each other. That's beautiful. And how has that informed how you approach loss when other people in your life are experiencing? I mean, grief and loss is just such a culturally taboo, difficult topic that most of us freeze or don't know what to say or don't say anything at all because we're afraid. And it's not until we ourselves are in that place of loss or deep sadness that there's this realization of, oh, this is what someone needs in that moment. So how has your experience shaped how you approach this topic in your life, in the lives of your immediate circle, your friends and family, and the broader platform you have with the Michael Phelps Foundation? Honestly, there's nothing to say. There's no right answer. It changes depending on the person. I honestly, it's just being there for the person, knowing that 
there is support because losing someone, whether it's unexpected or expected, it's not an easy loss. It's not easy to go through the grieving process. In the middle of the pandemic, there was a time that I was, I sat in my bed for three days and I didn't want to see people. I didn't want to answer my phone. And Nicole came over to my house, knocked on the door, and I knew she was there, and I pretended I wasn't at the house. And she called me, and she goes, I'm not going to leave until you let me in. And she just comes in the house and sits in bed with me. And to me, there's nothing she can say. There's nothing that she can do. But just sitting there and being there and being present and letting me know that I'm loved, that's what I share with other people, to let them know that they're loved. Let them grieve and let them go through their own process. But be there physically for that support. The idea of just sitting on your bed (laughs) and not necessarily saying anything. (laughs) I think so many of us default to this place of advice and being a cheerleader and giving a pep talk and just filling the space with words. It's so much more challenging to just sit in the silence with the person Nicole, how did you know that that's what Allison needed? And how did you find the strength to sit in the silence with her? So I honestly have to credit my children because I think that they've really taught me to pay attention and just kind of be and hold space versus trying to fix the situation. Because so often they'll throw a temper tantrum and you just can't fix it. There's not fixing a two-year-old's temper tantrum. With that being said, I think being in the household with Michael, who has anxiety and depression struggles, too, has taught me I can't fix him. So in that moment when I was with Allison, I I can't fix her, right? I can't fix what she's feeling. And so many of us, I think, because we were raised to fix a situation, to make things better, we don't stop to think, oh, maybe this person just needs me to hold space. And I knew in that moment, because she didn't want to come to the door, because she didn't want to answer her phone, because of all of those factors, it was more necessary to just be with her, to let her know that I was there, than for me to sit there saying, hey, I'm here. Hey, what's wrong? Hey, what can I do? Hey, do you want this? Do you Mm -hmm, want that? mm Because sometimes that just doesn't work. It overwhelms their system that's already overwhelmed. And you talked about this moment of holding space for Allison, how you hold space for your boys. How do you hold space for Michael? What does that look like in a day-to-day when you know or see that he is struggling and you said, I can't be his therapist. I can't fix this. Yeah. So Michael has very strong emotions. And I think for a long time, I was afraid of those emotions because I was essentially walking on eggshells and tiptoeing around because I didn't know how to handle it. And I also took it personally. And I was like, oh, well, he's angry because I did something wrong or he's angry because I'm not doing something right. And what I've come to realize is that a lot of what he experiences isn't because of something I've done or something I've done to him, but rather his own story that he's playing in his own head. And so I will let him know like, hey, not cool. This happened. Or, hey, just want you to know you're loved. I'm here let me know if there's anything I can do for you. Or today, let me know how I can show up for you. And sometimes that's being near him. Sometimes that's giving him as much space as he could possibly need. 
I'll throw him quotes every now and then just because I love quotes. So whether he reads them or not, I know at some point he will. (laughs) But I think the most important thing for me is to just recognize that I'm not carrying his weight on my shoulders. He's carrying his own weight. And all I can do is be present for him with him knowing that I'm there. So if he needs to talk to somebody, I'm there to talk to, but I'm not going to force it out of him. That is so hard to accept. (laughs) (laughs) It's so hard. I'm still working on it. (laughs) (laughs) Bravo to you. For people we love, it's just such a natural behavior to assume. A hundred percent. To recognize that our partners, our closest family members, our closest friends are not our therapists. Right. You've talked a lot about how you supported Michael. How does Michael support you in your journey and all of the work that you've done in your ability to hold space for everyone in your family? So I credit my kids, right, with teaching me a lot, but I credit Michael with pushing me to become my best self. Because without him on his mental health journey, there's no way that I would have started it. When he was in his rehabilitation center, I I attended something called Family Week. And there was work that I did in there. At the same time that I went into Family Week, my uncle had passed from alcoholism too. And so there was a lot stirring and got stirred during that time in my life. And it made me wake up and realize that there was probably a lot that I needed to work on. I definitely think I've gone through my share of depression, especially after having babies. I've had a little bit of postpartum. And so he's always just been there for me. So whatever it is, he'll get frustrated when I can't give him a solution or a fix. But in the same token, he's just there. And if I ask him for a hug, sometimes there's a struggle, right? Because it's like, why do you need a hug? Because he knows that's it's really difficult for me to ask for a hug. So he'll give me a lot of hell for asking for a hug, but he knows that's what I need. (laughs) But he's definitely allowed me to be who I am. And there's no, well, why are you doing that? Why are you doing this? It's just, oh, that's cool. Okay. Enjoy. Acceptance. Yeah. A lot of it. Allison, as a close friend of the Phelps family who gets an intimate view of the inner workings in the day-to-day, I know you have a burning question that you want to ask Nicole today. (laughs) Well, I see Nicole being a superhero every single day. And I'm sure just listening to this, you guys can see her as a superhero. But at the end of the day, she is human too. And with balancing being the wife of the greatest Olympian of all time, raising three boys that are within four years of each other, Being on the Michael Phelps Foundation, when do you have time for yourself? When are you able to balance mental health for yourself and prioritize yourself in all of the other responsibilities you have? So I do my best to. That's my short answer. I think for the last year, Michael and I have been in the gym together lifting weights. So for a long time, I thought that was my self-care. But then I came to realize that I was still in the gym with Michael. I wasn't doing it by myself. (laughs) Right? So I was like, oh, yeah, I got self-care down three days a week. I'm lifting weights with my husband. But I'm still with my husband. So I don't think that's self-care completely. But what I've recently started doing is just taking a moment daily to meditate. So five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever I can get, whether it's I'm laying in bed about to go to sleep or I catch a glimpse right after Maverick goes down for a nap. 
I take five or 10 minutes and do my best to form some kind of meditation. And that literally could just be focusing on my breathing or it could be a mantra for the day. And then the only other thing that I do is I have a girlfriend who has some equine therapy horses and I'll go out and I'll literally talk to the horses. Well, it's so important. And thank you for asking that question, Allison, because the anchors in our day and our week that allow us to be a better version of ourselves to our partners, to our families, to our work are critical to sustaining what we do. Allison, you've known Michael since 2008 when you trained together, and he's referred to you as his sister from another mother. You've both been very open about your struggles with anxiety and depression. How have you two supported one another emotionally, mentally, especially during the rigors of training and competing? Just understanding to, like Nicole said, hold that space for each other and understanding that we still have goals and our mental health and our mental illnesses are not going to deter us from those goals that we're going for. And I think that's the biggest thing to allow people to understand is that mental illness isn't necessarily mean you go into a room with four padded walls and you have no success. Mental illness is just an obstacle that we talk with therapists about. We gain tools to help ourselves navigate through those times, but we still have the end goal and the passions that we have in life. And so for us, just being there for support for each other, but also understanding that this life is a big game and you can't go through this life alone. So that's why we have teammates for life. And it's not just teammates in the pool, but it's teammates that will help navigate you through the hardest times in life, but also be there to celebrate in the happiest times of life. Is it harder to do that work and have those conversations while being in the public eye? Is it hard? Yes. I think anyone can answer, yes, it's extremely hard. And I would be lying if I did not say it was hard. I don't want to speak for Nicole, but if we were having this conversation four years ago, five years ago, Nicole would be saying something completely different. And just the work that she has put in for herself and has helped herself grow, I think is tremendous. And I don't believe that was an easy journey. And like she has said, she's still on that journey and she's still working on herself. And I think that's something that everyone can relate to. It's not, I went to therapy and I'm so-called fixed. It's, I went to therapy and I'm working on things and navigating my life, but those navigations and those obstacles change every single day. So yes, we are gaining tools to help self-growth, but those tools change every single day. And is it easy? Not at all. But admitting that you can't get through this life alone and you need those tools is a huge step within itself. And what specifically about living a life in the public eye? impacts the journey, the self-work, the conversations? Everyone's watching and everyone's judging. I'm sure a lot of people can relate that. I mean, you're on TV watching a sporting game and your favorite quarterback throws an interception and you start talking trash about that quarterback. But yet you're the one sitting on the couch. You're not the one doing the work. So 
yes, it's hard to be in public eye, especially now with social media. And I mean, young kids who are on social media, they aren't necessarily quote unquote celebrities, but they are too in the public eye. And that is a difficult concept for us to realize. But everyone online is hiding behind a computer or hiding behind a TV and judging someone else. So it is tough to be in the public eye, but when it comes down to it, that's why I always preach that kindness and love is what this world needs. Nicole, you said that you can't just flip a switch and say, I'm happy. I wake up. I changed my mindset. I'm even kind of thinking through what you said, Allison, about the loss and the depression and how both times Nicole and Michael mm-hmm. just sat there with you. And I have a good friend who he always uses the image of sitting in the well. He just sat in the well with you. They didn't try to pull you up. They let you be sad. What do we need to do to communicate how we're feeling honestly, both to ourselves and others, and not feel the need to just say, I'm fine (laughs) when someone (laughs) asks, how are you feeling today? And as the person on the other end, to be prepared to hear that, to be okay with that, to give space for that. I'm going to just touch on uh, the person on the other end because I've had my share of stories with Allison both ways because we both hold a lot of space, I think, for each other. And I think one of the biggest things to remember, I'm just going to kind of side note this, is you have to ask somebody before. I love the term spilling your tea all over them. Like you have to ask someone, can I share something with you? And I constantly tell Michael, I'm not going to answer you. I don't need to fix you. I don't need to respond in any way, shape or form. But you've got to tell me that's what you're looking for. You've got to let me know that you just want me to listen. So being an active, compassionate listener about what's going on without putting your own, you know, you'll wear your own glasses and you'll see it through whatever lenses you've decided you're going to see it through. But I think that's one of the biggest things that we can work on as a society is to hear someone without judging what they're saying. Because if you can't listen without judgment, then you're not hearing what they have to say. And I think that really helps when somebody is having a moment and whatever they're going through. And that goes for me too. When Allison listens to me without judging what I'm saying to her, she's just listening to me compassionately and hearing my side of it. I feel heard. That person sharing with you feels heard. And I think that's a lot of the issue right now is that we don't feel heard. No matter what I say to you, you're not listening to me. Well, yeah, you're not listening to me because you're judging me the whole time you're listening to me. Mm. So I think that's, that's really big for everyone. How much of it do you think is judgment and how much of it do you think is also us projecting our own experiences on someone else's experience? I completely agree with you. I think it is a lot of experience and projecting, a lot of projecting, right, in life. I say judgment because we don't know how else to hear things without saying, oh, well, you could have done this or you could do this. And so I think a lot of that may not be judgment, but it comes off like judgment when you're trying to share what it is. Mm. And in reality is projection. When we're doing that at the highest level and not judging and not projecting our experience, how does that show up in your home? Allison, do you have a good example of that? (laughs) Because Allison, okay, so Allison currently lives with us. So she sees a, a lot of Michael and I, and I think she's a good outside perspective. There's always three sides to every story. So she's our third side. She kind of sees it. (laughs) Um, I think the best example for that is coming from the kids. Kids are going to fight about the silliest things. Kids are going to do accidents. They 
don't understand exactly how to control their emotions and say one of the kids hits the other one, well, Michael and Nicole do a great job of asking both sides of the story. And even if it was witnessed by an adult of what happened, they still allow each side to tell their story so that they can understand the whole picture of it rather than, I just saw you hit Beckett, I just saw you hit Boomer, Maverick, whoever it is, and immediately punish them, but understand where that anger came from, why you hit your brother, um, and not completely judging that right away. Of course, yes, I'm not saying that there's no consequences and that everything's (laughs) rainbow and butterflies once that (laughs) happens, but they leave the floor open to understand both sides of the story rather than looking through their glasses and what they saw and punishing based off what they saw rather than knowing the whole picture and the whole story. Isn't it funny how watching and interacting with kids can help educate us on how to function at a higher (laughs) level? I had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I am challenged daily. (laughs) Also going back to in the times of acute grief and loss, So Allison, when you lost April and what Nicole and Michael did for you and and learning, oh, this is how I want to be supported. This is how I want someone to show up for me. I know that last winter, my husband and I lost what would have been our third child. And what was so illuminating to me was how many of the women in my life would project their experience in having conversation with me and my loss. And it was my male friends who could just sit in the well because they couldn't possibly understand what I was experiencing. And they said that. They're like, I can't imagine what you're going through. So there's nothing I can say. There is nothing to say in that moment. You've talked, Nicole, about your own journey, understanding and living alongside Michael's depression, anxiety. And there were things that you needed to accept and understand in order to move forward together. What were some of those pieces and what's your journey been like in recognizing this is what he needs and he's going to carry his own weight and I'm not going to take that on? Oh, That own weight thing is so difficult. (laughs) As I've gone down my path, we often say that the destination is is what we're looking for, right? But I think this journey is the most important piece of all of it. And it's watching Michael has taught me more about myself and where my trigger points are and what I saw growing up and thinking I needed to do to function within the world to be happy. He's shown me a lot of that stuff. And I think part of what I've witnessed with him is his depression and, like we've discussed, needing to fix it or needing to fix what's going on in the house or trying to protect my children. That was one of the biggest things that I learned was just he would have a flare-up and all I would want to do was usher the kids out of the room, kick him out of the house, and protect everybody from seeing what was taking place. And that's not the answer. Because if we continue to hide mental health, we're never going to have an understanding for it. Mm -hmm. And we're never going to have a compassion for it. And if I raise my children to see that people struggle, 
especially their own father, who's supposed to be the beacon of strength, this Olympic hero who's accomplished so much, and that he's this perfect person that never has any kind of emotion. I'm doing them a disservice. And so as I've gone on this journey, I've learned that the best thing that I can do is say, hey, look at dad. Dad's struggling. Dad's a man. All three of you are boys and will be men someday. Men struggle. Men cry. Men have emotions. Men work through things. And I think if I can help my three boys, and like Michael says, I want to just save a life. If I can help my three boys be compassionate men, then I'm going to help the future in some way, shape, or form. And so as I go on my journey, like I've said, I'm helping shape the future of what compassion will look like in men for mental health. That is so gorgeous. And I can't even imagine the work and difficulty and even getting to that point. So inspiring. It's a lot. Thank you. Yeah. I, I know that I've only just begun, but it's been so beautiful to watch so far. How do the boys react to those moments and to that conversation. So Boomer will become, I think he'll become angry, right? Because that's his outward expression. Beckett will be a little bit more withdrawn, but he has a tendency to be more withdrawn to himself, read books. And Maverick will just laugh, like this evil, sinister laugh. And you're like, what, what does that even mean? <laughs> so every kid is different, right? But you're like, okay, well now how do I handle every emotion that's coming out of every kid as I watch my husband go through his own stuff too. But they all react differently and they're all so compassionate and they all want to help. And so one of the biggest things when myself or Michael or Allison is struggling is, can we go give them a hug? I know just from learning, as you know, I'm sure physical touch is one of the best ways to help somebody work through an emotion. So them recognizing that giving somebody else a hug might potentially help them is pretty cool. And what about those moments, those flare-ups where you're saying and kind of walking them through and saying, look, yes, dad is this Olympic hero. He's strong. He's a man, but he's struggling. Do they get it? How are they responding in those moments? The greatest thing that we can look at that way is that they don't have those lenses. They don't see dad as an Olympic hero. They don't see dad as a man who's not allowed to have emotions, right? So what we're teaching them is what they get to go into the world with. So yes, I think there's times where it's like, well, why is dad crying? But I don't think that they have that lens of dad's not allowed to cry because he's all of these titles. He's just human. So dad gets to cry because dad's hurting. Yeah, I definitely think that I've seen how they don't have those judgmental eyes and they're not scared to approach you crying. And as an adult, I know I've had this fear and I'm not sure if Michael and Nicole have had this fear, but I've shared this fear with them of crying around their kids. I don't want their kids to think that I'm weak or that I'm always crying. And Nicole has always said to me, well, they need to see you cry. They need to see that that's okay. And so accepting that as an adult has definitely been a process. I remember one of the last times I was crying and I was like, I'm just going to go and get on the bike. And Boomer came in and he asked me if I wanted a hug. And I was like, yeah, I want a hug. Thank you. And he sat there like nothing was wrong. Played with his toys like nothing was wrong. And I asked and I said, they call me TT. And I said, have you ever seen TT cry? And he goes, yeah. I said, is it okay when TT cries? He said, yeah. I said, does Boomer cry? He goes, yeah. And I said, is it okay when Boomer cries? 
yeah. And that was the extent of the conversation. It was like, okay, people cry. It's okay. We can still live our lives and people can be crying and we can just be there for them. It's like we go through life and the world kind of shakes the purity out of us in terms of now experiencing life with judgment and fear. So what can we do to help cultivate and preserve that innocence that allows us to feel the full range of emotions and validate the full range of emotions and not be so influenced by societal norms? I think a lot of that is compassion for yourself. Like you have to have it for the person next to you. And at times that's very difficult when you're in public. But I think having compassion for yourself first will teach you compassion for those around you. I think learning to love yourself first will teach you to be loving to those around you. Because if you can't accept who you are and what you believe and the walks of life that you've experienced and that's shaped you, I don't think you can find that same acceptance and compassion for those around you. Mm-hmm. Uh Thank you both so much for so generously sharing your time with us today. This has been such an enlightening conversation. I feel like I now would have so many follow-up questions for other people in my life inspired by this chat. Things that you both have said have inspired now jumping points for other conversations with other people in my life. So thank you for that ripple effect. (laughs) Before we close our time together, want to give us an opportunity to ground ourselves before we move on to that distraction that we put in the box at the top of the conversation. So let's just close by thinking about something in particular that we are grateful for in this moment a word, a phrase, an expression of gratitude today. And when we're ready, we'll just share that word or phrase of gratitude with one another as we go off in our respective ways. (laughs) My phrase is opportunity. I'm grateful for emotional honesty today. Acceptance of love. (laughs) Thank you, Allison. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for allowing us to share. Thanks for listening to Move This World with me, Sarah Potler Lahane. Before you go, wherever you are right now, join me for one final breath and hold in your mind a word or phrase that you are taking away from this conversation. Breathe in and out. At Move This World, we know social and emotional wellness is necessary, relevant, and impacts our everyday lives at school, in our homes at our workplaces, and in our relationships. The tools we need to develop are critical for our happiness and success as individuals and as communities. Together, we can create a world where everyone belongs. To explore more ways to move this world, visit us at movethisworld.com or follow us on Twitter at move underscore this world. If you liked this episode, please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was produced by Jonathan Jacobson and Seaplane Armada. I cannot wait to move this world with you.